Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. If you had told me a few years ago that someday I'd have my very own podcast and I'd be able to invite anybody on that I wanted and that one of my very first guests would be a guy who wrote a book called A Fearless Heart, I would have been a little bit surprised. But in this case, I'm going to set aside my militant anti-sentimentality because this guy is worth it. His name is Thupton Jinpa. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Um, He's got a Ph.D. from Cambridge. And he's now working with Stanford University where he's created a secular protocol called Compassion Cultivation Training, or CCT, which is basically a course that teaches people a series of meditative techniques designed to build your compassion muscles. Uh, another name for this course could be uh, How Not to Be a Jerk to Yourself and Others. Uh, that's my branding, not his. Um, and this program, CCT, is now being studied in the labs, uh, and it's shown that it, it makes people happier and healthier and better able to regulate their emotions. Uh, and basically what Thupton's trying to do here is to do for compassion what's already been done for mindfulness, which is to create a, a lot of excitement around it. Everybody knows that there's an enormous amount of science uh, that at least strongly suggests that mindfulness is good for you. Um, so what Thupton is hoping to achieve, and I, I really support this, is to get the message out there that there is a powerful scientifically validated, self-interested case for not being a jerk. Um, great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank Congratulations. you. The book has just come out in paperback. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to get to the book and to the uh, uh, CCT and, uh, and to your advice about how people can practice this at home in a minute, but I want to start with your personal story, which is really epic. You, um, as a child, you were a refugee from Tibet. You became a monk at age 11. Um, they somehow made it to Cambridge University twice. Um, and then, uh, and I haven't even mentioned this yet, you also have served as the Dalai Lama's personal uh, English translator for 30 years, uh, during which context I've actually met you a few times um, when I've interviewed uh, His Holiness. So uh, let's just start with that. You, um, How old were you when your family had to leave Tibet? Thank you. Uh, let me first of all, you know, say how deeply honored I am. I didn't realize, actually, I was, I'm was. i one of the early guests on your podcast show. Uh, it's such an honor and pleasure. Um, I was barely a year when my parents left in 1959 um, in the wake of uh, the Chinese occupation of Tibet and the Dalai Lama's exodus kind of flight to India. Um, so I don't remember uh, at all. But I, I do tell my many of my young Tibetan colleagues that at least I had drunk Tibetan water. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in Tibet. So in the early part of my childhood was really spent in India, in the northern part of India. And your parents were basically, I mean, based on what I read in your book, kind of conscripted into working on doing road work in northern India. Yes. Um, uh, after the initial kind of resettlement assistance that the international aid agencies as well as the government of India offered to the large number of Tibetans, because around 80,000 followed the Dalai Lama to India. So that's a very large number to absorb. Um, so after f- the first few months of re- initial resettlement and assistance, then of course, people have to support themselves. Now, what do you do? I mean, my parents' generation, they don't speak any English at all. They don't speak local Hindi. And they have never really been outside Tibet. So, you know, what can they do? And 
The only thing they could do, and actually they were well suited to do, was the road construction at high altitude because all of a sudden India now had to man a very large international border. To protect themselves from the Chinese. Chinese. And for centuries, because the border was between Tibet and India, there was no conflict, so there was no need to defend the border at all. And all of a sudden now India now has to defend its border against potential Chinese aggression, so which meant building roads that are militarily kind of, you know, viable. And many of the Tibetans of my parents' generation ended up working on those. And they were very grateful because at least they got employment. Right, but it wasn't easy. And, and you and the kids were were separated from their parents. for ex- you, you got to stay with your parents at the work site for a couple of weeks once yes. in a while, but yes. you were living separately. Exactly. I mean, that's the kind of typical story of children of my Tibetans of my generation. I mean, if, if the children are very small, of course, they will be with their parents up to age four. And then um, um, at, I was sent to a boarding school at the age of four because the parents have to move from one side to another side. These are tent camps. And as the road, road progressed, they have to move camps, which meant that they cannot really look after the you know older kids. And they were all sent to boarding schools that were run, set up for the Tibetan refugee children. But the smaller ones, I do remember um, vividly once I was visiting my parents from my school and there were very small children who were tied to pegs like dogs with a leash around their waist so that the mothers can work and the mothers would be breaking stones to make pebbles to put on the road uh, for the asphalt. And the children will be far, has to be far enough because otherwise chips will affect their eyes. But they have to be close enough so that they can keep an eye. So I remember vividly seeing children tied up, you know, to pegs. So so these conditions really were not optimal for human flourishing. And in fact, your mother got sick. Yes, yeah. My mother, um, after the birth of my sister, who was the third child, um, she became ill. And at that time, also, my father was already ill and in a hospital. So I think she really went through a very difficult time. And soon after the birth of my sister, she, you know, left the child at the daycare or, or a childcare in one of the Tibetan communities and visited my father. And it turns out that there was internal bleeding, which could have been prevented, but because there was no... And we have to understand that the level of education among the Tibetans was also quite low in terms of modern education. So they did not know much about health needs. So unfortunately, in Dharamsala, after a few days, she passed away. And you were nine. Yes, yeah. And and uh, again, I'm just getting this from having read your book, but it was actually a, a part of a number of what must have been devastating and confusing events because your mother passed away and then your father went off and joined a monastery, so you were kind of on your own. Yes, I was at a Tibetan boarding school. And in fact, the first time he came to see me, um, it was a bit of a shock because he turned up in monk's robes with clean-shaven head. And for a second, I did not actually recognize him. And um, no one had warned me that he had become a monk. <laughs> so, why, why, would he, why, why would he do that? I think, um, I mean, Tibetans are very devout religious people, uh, particularly of my parents' generation. And uh, because he was sick for a long time and, and there was a lot of tragedy with my mother's death, I think he did some consultations with lamas and many of them kind of converged on saying that, you know, your your long-term health and the well-being of your children is better off if no. you choose to become a monk. And 
Interestingly, you, not long thereafter, you became a monk. Yes, I did, yeah. At did age too. 11? It was 11, yeah. And, uh, after I finished my grade four. So how did you, here you are, a refugee, um, you lost your mother, your father went off to join a monastery, you go and become a monk. During all of this, you somehow become fluent in English. How did, how did that happen? Well, um, the reason why I chose to become a monk was, you know, I remember very clearly that a group of monks came and stayed for a couple of weeks at our school, boarding school in Shimla. Shimla is the town. In yeah, in northern area. India. Yeah. It's the British summer capital, a former British summer capital. And it's a beautiful area. It's a, it's a nice area of North India. And I remember at school, you know, my constant memory of school, two enduring memories are actually hunger and boredom. Mm. So it was not very challenging academically for me. Then all of a sudden we had these groups of monks staying there for a couple of weeks. And each class was assigned a monk. And the monk who was assigned to our class taught us elementary monastic debate. And I was completely fascinated. Monastic debate. debate. So it's a debating tradition which uses kind of logical rules. And that's the main kind of form of a medium of scholarship in the academic monasteries. Later I found out. And also the monks had, you know, the stories they were telling about, you know, classical India and Buddhism and the life of the Buddha was fascinating. And of course, as a, you know, eight, nine-year-old kid, I just wanted to be like them, you know? <laughs> so that was the main reason why I really wanted to become a monk. Well, I mean, cause that would not have inspired me as an 80-year-old. I, eight-year-old, I was interested in video games. So you were definitely <laughs> a, a special kid if that was inspiring to you. Well, because I associated, you know, someone wearing monastic robes with intelligence and something interesting and kind of, you know, sharp, logical thinking, you know, all of that. But the English, uh, when I left school, I had a rudimentary English to be able to read. Of course, I wasn't able to speak and did not, not understand much. But the timing was perfect. The monastery that I joined where my father was a monk was in Dharamsala. And this was in 1970-71 at the height of the hippie movement. And there were a lot of Western hippies in the Dharamsala area. And that meant that I had an opportunity to hang out with them, you know, make friends, started having conversations. And in fact, I made friends with one particular person who stayed in Dharamsala for a while. And I would visit him twice or once a week and spend some time with him. And that's how I was able to pick up English. And how did you end up becoming the Dalai Lama's English translator? That was Pure coincidence. It was in 85. Uh, by that time, I was based in South India at one of the large monastic academic monasteries. And um, I was visiting Dharamsala to see my younger brother and sister who were at the Tibetan Children's Village. And it so happened that His Holiness was scheduled to give a series of teachings. And at the request of a Los Angeles-based Buddhist center, but the official interpreter they had arranged could not make it on the first day because of the plane delay. And they were looking for someone to stand in for him. So you're like the understudy. Exactly. And then the word spread around, there's this young monk who has a reasonably good command of English. Maybe he can do it. You know, one thing led to another. I was plucked out of my seat by the secretary and put in there to translate for his holiness. But fortunately, the, the, the format of the interpreting was simultaneous, which meant it's less nerve-wracking because there is no stopping. So His Holiness continues to talk, and then the interpreter speaks through FM radio. So it's much less nerve-wracking, and the text that he was teaching was something that I was very familiar with. 
So that's how. And then, um, you know, two or three days later, His Holiness called me up. And uh, I had a private meeting with him. And he said, I know you. You are a good scholar. You are from one of the monasteries. And he said, how come I don't, I did not know that you spoke English? When we come back, give us the real deal. Do you ever see him get into a bad mood? Of course, yes. I mean, really? He, you know, Has he, he ever yelled he, at you? Yes, yeah, he is a human being. Stick around. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. From all across the globe to every corner here at home, he asks, he listens. For more than a decade, he's been right there, everywhere. David Muir, covering our world. And when American jobs are on the line, he leads the charge. More Americans are now watching World News Tonight than in a decade. And we thank you. ABC's World News Tonight with David Muir. He reports to you. So you must have been freaking out once you entered his orbit in a in a reasonably yes. permanent way. Uh, well, when he then he said, you know, some people told me that you have an easy English to listen to, and would you be willing to, you know, travel with me if I need your service? Of course, you know, I wasn't even dreaming about this, and I just broke down in tears. And you know, for a Tibetan, and especially a, a, someone of that age, who you know, for us, His Holiness is always this very elevated figure and who's like the source of our meaning, source of our purpose, our existence in the exile community. And I was, of course, tremendously, you know, touched and uh, said, of course, I've never, even in my dream, I ever thought that I will have an, uh, an opportunity like that. Yeah. But give us the real deal. Do you ever see him get into a bad mood? Of course, yes. I mean, really? he, you know, has he, he ever yelled he, at you? He, yes, yeah, he is a human being. You've and, been yelled at by the Dalai Lama. That's pretty. Well, not yelled, but scolded. Really? Yes. So you know, because I've this year would be thirty years working with him. So thirty years, if I don't get scolded several times, then something is wrong. <laughs> I mean, he's because, the Dalai Lama. He's never, not supposed to get into a bad mood. Well, I mean, he's a human being. I mean, he is an amazing individual, definitely, but. At the end, he's, and, and in fact, for me, honestly, when I see him occasionally, you know, lose it and scold me, I actually feel more respect for him because he's not trying to hide it. 
He's very genuine. He's very authentic. And, you know, what you see is what you get. And, of course, he has a level of mastery of his mind, which is amazing and impressive. But at the end of the day, he's also a human being. You know, he is susceptible to all the irritation, especially when he's tired. And the amount of work that he does... And if you look at his international travels and his itinerary, it's almost every minute is yeah, I know. accounted for. And yeah. you really got to have a tremendous degree of stability to be able to maintain your cool throughout all of that time. And then I actually told some of my colleagues that, you know, when his holiness scolds you, you know, you have to appreciate this because if he's not allowed to scold his staff, who else can he scold? True, true. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, I, let me just ask you a few more questions about uh, His Holiness, um, because I and I talk about I've been open about this in my book. Yes. I'm, I'm pretty sure he hasn't read the book, um, but I approach him with some level of of just reflexive skepticism because um, I, I'm, you know, an agnostic sure, Western sure, sure. skeptic raised by scientists, married to a scientist, and and. The kind of Buddhism that I practice, you know, is that th- we don't have smells and bells. Sure, There's not sure. no robes or exactly. anything like that. Exactly. And, um, uh, you know, and obviously he he's considered to be a reincarnation and he has the term his holiness and title, sure. which I've never understood because I read a lot. I read a lot about Buddhism and there's not anything about holiness really no. mentioned. No. So well, why, where does that come from? I think it's, a you know, I mean, it, this is the thing because when he... F- I think that the, the, the term His Holiness, the epithet that we end up using, is really a kind of a projection from the West. And Western European, particularly the British relationship with the Dalai Lamas began in the beginning of the 20th century. So already a pattern was established re- referring to his predecessor as His Holiness, the 13th Dalai Lama. So, and in the West, you know, the, you always want to figure out who is the highest, who is the lower, the ranks matter, and especially when you're in a kind of journalistic description of a, another foreign leader, you need to, you would want to make sure that you get the title right. So he's so like this competing is how, with the Pope or something. Well, like that. I think this is how the titles came to be because he inherited because his predecessor, the previous Dalai Lama, was referred to as the Holiness, the Third uh. Dalai Lama, by the British press. Then automatically, when the young Dalai Lama was recognized. The title got transferred. That's how. But he, I mean, if you ask him, he would say, I'm just a simple Buddhist monk, you know. And that's and that is truly who he is. And and to his credit, I've now sat with him a couple of times and he does say that. And he was the first he is the first to admit that he is not perpetually uh, in some state of sure. bliss or anything sure. like that. And so he does deserve uh, credit for that. But do, do, let me just ask you, after all the education you've had, all the traveling you've done, do you do you believe that he is the reincarnation? Do you believe in reincarnation? I do. I, I do. Uh, honestly, uh, there's nothing in science and philosophy that I've done at Stanford and Cambridge and also through the many years of mind and life work. That, uh, let me just interrupt you. Yeah, mind and life. Mind and life institute. Might, yeah, that mind is a, a, basically a consortium of scientists who are exactly. looking, doing neuroscience around contemplative techniques such as meditation. Exactly. And also trying to understand the mind from the perspective of the first person experience, which is what is needed to add to the scientific third person outside kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is nothing in what I've learned from all of these that really undermines my um, belief in the reincarnation because reincarnation in the end, you know, is grounded upon your conception of what consciousness is. 
if you have a materialistic conception of what consciousness is, that consciousness is nothing but an emerging property from the you know physiological processes. In other words, then you have a body and a brain, and exactly, consciousness just emerges, just emerges. from that. Yeah. Then, of course, it's very difficult to ground your you know understanding of reincarnation. But if you have an understanding that consciousness is more in the form of an information type, but it, it can be grounded, it can have any kind of material basis, and there is a continuity of its own, which is more of a kind of a, a structure of energy, then reincarnation isn't that much of a stretch. So um, I, I, I don't... And also the basic truth of Buddhism, you know, I'm, I'm a practicing Buddhist still, many of the basic truths of Buddhism really has to do with fundamental reality of human aspiration and needs and reality and perfectibility of our mind, the, the ways in which we can self-regulate our emotions. And, you know, there are certain qualities of our nature that can be, you know, developed and perfected. So many of these insights and teachings, I think, remain valid. It doesn't really matter what scientific framework you have. Oh, I mean, look, on the latter half of that, sure. well, first of all, let me just say on reincarnation, I, I just, I remain respectfully sure. agnostic. Sure. I don't know. Sure. I mean, so I, I don't make any claims either sure. way. I just, um, it's hard for me to espouse it unreservedly because I just don't True. know. But on the, the latter half of what you just said, that the that one of, if not the fundamental insights of Buddhism, and Buddhism is a tricky word because sure. the Buddha didn't think he was founding a religion, sure. and now there are many, many schools. But it's the true. one main common common denominator among all the different schools is that, and this is hugely important. You don't have to be a Buddhist. You don't have to be anything in order to find this radical and empowering, which is that the mind can be trained. The yes. mind through which we experience everything. Yes. You know, we spend so much time on our bank accounts, our in our home decor, our um, our um, cars, our bodies, but almost no time, most of us, on the one filter through which we experience everything. That's true. And it is susceptible to training. And that, I mean, it's been taught in an Eastern quote-unquote religious context for millennia, but that is a, that's our birthright. It's true. And also in principle, there is nothing religious about that idea. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's one of the reasons why His Holiness in particular is very keen to engage with scientists and kind of humanistic philosophy to bring that insight into an idiom and a conceptual framework that is independent of religion. Because, you know, and the same thing with compassion. I mean, historically, something like compassion is embedded within the religious ideology and idiom and metaphor. But in itself, we're talking about a fundamental human quality. Mm-hmm. And same goes for many of the techniques that has to do with training our mind. I mean, one of the things that I find beautifully kind of uh, encouraging is that in the in the, one of the very important statements of the Buddha, he says that with our mind, we create our world. I mean, literally, you know, we may be all living in the same physical environment, but each of us live in a slightly different world that we ourselves create. And and what he means by that is the way we see the world around us, the ways we see ourselves literally shapes the way we experience it. And the way in which the quality and the tone of our experience then influences our behavior. So in, our, in other words, you know, our mind has a powerful role in determining the quality of our life. You You talked about all the science that's happening around this. And you've been right there, not only translating, but also working with the Mind and Life Institute. Yes. Um, and also your work at Stanford with CCT, which I want to get to. 
in just a minute. But but just to close the loop on your personal story, you were no longer a monk. Yes. You 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 left, uh, and you now are married, and you have teenage daughters, and you live in Montreal. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? Well, um, one of the things that um, you know I struggled with as a monk was always a kind of a. a a yearning for a family. Um, and probably, you know, maybe I'm now being kind of slightly Freudian here. If I try to psychoanalyze myself, why is there this kind of yearning? It's probably because I missed family life from a very, very early age. You know, at age four, I was sent to boarding school. At age nine, my mother died. Then my father became a monk. So I never really had a real family kind of warm kind of memory. Mm. So I think there was a yearning for a family, and that really never went away. So when I was in my early 30s, as I was becoming more and more kind of senior in the, within the monastic establishment, then it became morally, you know, important, morally important question for me to really ask myself, do I see my entire future within the monastic establishment or do I really need to follow my heart? and seek a family because one of the things is the more senior you are if you leave the more damage it could do to the community so that was the decision i made and i just happened to be very fortunate i landed well found a beautiful wife who was you know she had my values she's french canadian quebecois and um, you know and parenting experience had been really a joy for me it's there were challenges both in the area of relationships and parenting as well, but also I've you know learned that many of the skills that I've acquired as a monk were perfectly applicable and tremendously useful. Yeah, in, well, I mean, that's why it's so valuable for the rest of us to be adopting these practices that for so long were exactly. sort of cloistered uh, in monastic in communities. Monsters, yeah. So let, let's talk about compassion and your program um, CCT, which is designed to teach people how to be compassionate. I think the best question to ask early, though, is what exactly is compassion? How is it different from empathy or sympathy or pity? Yes, that's a very important question because in everyday English, we tend to conflate all of them and mix them up, and sometimes we use them interchangeably. Um, but compassion, I would define as a kind of a the natural response that you experience in the face of someone's suffering where you are able to connect with that person's experience and, you know, wish to do something about it. So there is, when compassion arises in us, there is the perception of the other person's suffering, you know, followed by understanding it. There is also an emotional component where you actually connect with that suffering. You're moved by that suffering. And then there is also a kind of a motivational component where you want to do something. And, you know, now in, in neuroscience, they also see that when compassion arises, the motor regions of the brain also becomes active. So, you know, a lot of things happen at the same time. And empathy is more of a route to compassion. So empathy is closer to emotion. So when you experience empathy, you're making that emotional connection with the other person's experience. But the and compassion has the action or desire to desire. act. On so there is a that. desire that is yeah. the added component. So when you're in compassion in some sense, you're no longer just in the emotional state. And that's why, you know, one of the things that people like myself who are involved in development of compassion training, we, we try to bring across the key point is that empathy in itself, if you are just trapped in that state, is not very constructive because it's very draining. It's also uh, because, and, and, and even from an evolutionary point of view, emotions are not meant to be enduring. Emotions are meant to be fleeting. 
emotions are indicator of a, a message. Something important is happening in you, in your life or around you. Pay attention, and then you are supposed to do something after it. So if you are able to train your mind so that you are responsive enough to feel empathy, but then move on to compassion, then your focus will be more on the solution rather than getting stuck in the suffering. And that I think is an important point. So you you talk very well in the book, and I'll give you a chance to do it here, about why there's resistance among so many people to compassion. Um, that there's generally been a view in in science that we are inherently selfish. Yes. Um, also, some people are worried about compassion because they think it's going to make them weak or stupid, yes. um, uh, insufficiently tough. I, my my, you don't talk about this in the book, but for me, my, and I, this does not speak well of me, sure. but I'll admit it anyway. My problem with compassion was that, first of all, it just seemed irretrievably sappy and gooey, and and I didn't, I, I like like a Valentine's Day sentiment. Yes. Um, and then also, um, I didn't get into meditation to be Mother Teresa. I got into sure. meditation to make myself less miserable. So I wasn't really in it, you know, to you know help anybody else sure, uh, because sure. I was just trying to be less of a jer- you know jerk sure. to myself sure. and be less crazy. Sure. So t- tell me why the old me was wrong. Um, I mean, this is this is part of the problem of um, our culture in the West, uh, and in fact, I make this point in the book that we in the West don't really have a good cultural framework to understand compassion. Uh, Part of that has to do with history because we somehow have found a way to relegate compassion either within the domain of religion where we expect it as part of a saintly quality of someone that we admire like Jesus or some other figure or we relegate it in the private domain of a family life where we expect love, kindness, and compassion to your children from your parents and so on. And we, by doing that, we then leave no room for compassion. And we don't expect to have see compassion within the public domain of a shared space. And that is one problem because we, part of that has to do with associating compassion too much with sentimentality. We, compassion has both the emotional component, yes, which is making the connection, opening up the heart, and so on. But compassion also has this... There you go with that heart and soul yes. stuff again. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's... In, in fact, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the power of heart. I mean, often, a lot of the things that we do are motivated by some kind of emotion. But, you know, you said something in the book, and I'm digressing a little bit here, and I don't want to derail you uh, too much, but I just want to point out that you say in the book that in the ancient language of Pali, the language of the Buddha, heart and mind are the same word. Yes, yes. And so that is a key thing here. That's true. This is not like a hallmark uh, idea of heart. That's true. Or an emoji of a heart. True. This is really the... It's consciousness. Exactly, yeah. I mean, so I would argue that you know, we need to tone down the sentimental dimension of what we understand by the word compassion, but emphasize also the more cognitive, the perception side of compassion, which has to do with action and understanding and perspective. Because compassion as a felt response, of course, has strong emotional component. But compassion as a standpoint has less emotional uh, kind of you know, dimension. And I think... This is an important point because, you know, for example, if we are talking about the place of compassion in a public space, we need to emphasize not so much the feeling component, but the perspective component, which is grounded upon 
the case that we need to recognize the shared commonality of all humans and respect the basic humanity of each one of us. So the idea behind, say, for example, respect for fundamental human rights of all, that is a compassion principle. And if you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as well as the American Charter of Declaration of Independence, you know, there is compassion. It's not explicitly stated, but the underlying foundation that grounds these principles is really compassion, mm. which is a recognition of a fundamentally shared common humanity, which is defined by our social nature and where we have both needs as well as vulnerabilities that needs to be respected and taken into account. And that part of compassion needs is less evident in Western formulations because the way in which we have somehow historically dealt with compassion. And you haven't said this yet, but you're kind of building to it. The, uh, another reason why the old me, anti-compassion me was wrong is that actually compassion is in your personal exactly. best interest. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is. I mean, here His Holiness makes a very, very powerful point. He said that when you experience compassion and act out of kindness towards someone, he says whether or not that particular action and your feeling benefits the other person, which is the object, the, the recipient of your act. It depends on many other factors, you know, whether the person is ready or, you know, whether it was the right thing to do. But one thing that cannot be de denied is at that moment when you acted, you feel good. So the first beneficiary of compassion is actually yourself. And we in the West tend to think when we think about compassion, we immediately think in, think in terms of self-sacrifice, you know, only about the other and all of this. And in fact, he's making the argument that actually compassion is also in your own self-interest. Yeah, I mean, look, if, for anybody who doubts this, I mean, just watch what happens when you hold the door open for somebody or you let somebody go in front of you online. What is that moment like for you? It feels good. There's exactly. a little squirt of dopamine happening in your mind. Exactly. Um, you know, you and you you talk about this beautifully in, in your book, um, A Fearless Heart, where you, you, you say... And I love this. Compassion gives us a sense of purpose beyond our habitual, petty obsessions. You go on to describe it as escaping the prison of obsessive self-involvement. Yes. When you are caught up in your uh, habitual neuroses, as most of us are most of the time, it doesn't feel good. Exactly. And also when, we are, when our focus is too narrow and focus too much on self, even the small problems tend to assume a very great proportion. So they, they seem almost unbearable. But we are able to open up that focus a little bit and to leave enough space to think about others as well. Then the problems that we face in our life, you know, they don't go away. But we have a different perspective on them. They assume a different proportion within that framework. And that in itself, I mean, this is also one of the reasons why Increasingly now, there is some indication that the more compassionate you are, the more you are able to bring into account other people's kind of well-being as part of your equation, you feel less stressed. I mean, that's almost paradoxical because one, the rational mind would say, hang on a minute. You know, if you're thinking about someone else's problem, you are taking on an additional problem in addition to what you already have. You know, why wouldn't that make you more miserable, additionally more miserable? But it turns out it's exactly the opposite because by opening up our focus, including someone else, giving space for someone, it some, somehow seems to kind of tone down the intensity 
of our own anxiety and our own suffering. Yes, because the highest form of suffering is obsessive self-focus. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and again, you don't trust me or 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 Thibden, just examine your own life. Um, so I I I I think a lot of people are uh, are are the one of the reflexive. Um, uh, avenues of rejection uh, for what we're discussing here among some of my listeners may be, well, um, I work in a competitive environment or uh, um, I'm trying to make my way in a cold world. I don't, I don't have room for compassion. It will mess me up. That's true. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think you know taking compassion seriously and wanting to make compassion an important part of your life and a guiding principle should not preclude our ability to compete in a competitive world. I mean, we have to, you know, we have to face the reality. The world is competitive. And in fact, any society, so long as it has some idea of progress, cannot rule out competition. I mean, the competition is part and parcel of human development and progress. Um, and I in, recently, I, I was asked to write a special foreword to the Korean edition of my book. And, uh, you know, Korea, South Korea is one of the most competitive uh, places, uh, scaringly, actually, especially when it comes to children's education. And uh, and my the publisher was saying that, uh, you know, I want you to write a special forward uh, preface because the Korean audience are even more skeptical. And so they are highly competitive. What can you say about the relationship between compassion and com- competition, whether or not it will undermine it? And um, wh- one thing I did write in that is that, you know, taking compassion seriously hasn't undermined, you know, prevent me from being able to go to Cambridge, which is a very competitive <laughs> admissions. So I think that the, there, you know, Solanus talks about a positive kind of comp- competition and a negative kind of competition. The positive kind of competition involves you want to bring the best of you. You want to bring you know, the, the, your ability in the optimal level. And it's not done in the, in the way in which you want to deliberately push others down. You want to compete, in a sense, with yourself so that you bring the best out of yourself. So there's a way of doing competition which is actually uh, um, compatible with the compassionate principle. But the main point, argument I would make the, is this. If, if you are able to bring some compassion into your life, in the end, you benefit because you, are, you become happier. There is... You know, there's not much point in being conventionally being very successful, but at the same time deeply miserable. I mean, in the end, what's the point of becoming successful? The, right, you know, right. This, to enjoy your life. Exactly. Right. Uh, you know, ostensibly. And, and the life, you know, the, the interesting thing about life is regardless of whether you're happy or miserable, the life goes on. And the key argument I try to make when talking about compassion is that it's in your self-interest to make sure that while life goes on, that life is more enjoyable, happier. Sure. I mean, just to get back to your point about the, the sort of the more crass end of the spectrum here on, on the competition part of it, not only is it true that, as you say, um, uh, when you're competing, being bogged down by useless hatred and jealousy is a waste of energy, but it is also true that notwithstanding the American ideal of a maverick out there bootstrapping uh, 
bootstrapping his or her way to a successful business or career. Actually, we live in interconnected human beings with other homo sapiens. And exactly. we need yeah. them in order exactly. to get anything done. Exactly. And if you're a jerk all the time, it, good luck getting people to work with you. Yes, exactly. And yeah. I think that's where compassion really makes sense. It's definitely. Yeah. And also, you know, as social animals, um, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, a large part of our experience of happiness and suffering is defined by the quality of our relationship with others, with our colleagues at workplace, with our spouses, with our children. And compassion is key to this. You know, basically what compassion asks is the ability to take into account the impact of our behavior and thoughts on others that are important in our life so that we make space in, in the way in, as part of the equation. And the more you are able to do it, of course, the more compassionate you are. But at the, at the bottom, what compassion asks us is to take into account the well-being and the need and, and the wish of the other person in your life. And, you know, if you're able to do that, you know, you become someone whose company is more enjoyable, mm -hmm. to be more, f you know, you, you, you become more fun to be with. I mean, so, and, 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 and again, you don't have to take our word for this. The science seems it's to definitely. back you, uh, you up, us up. Um, and I'll just say from my own first-person experience, um, you know, while I'm actually still pretty obnoxious, I was much more obnoxious um, before I started meditating. And I do this, um, you know, sort of loving-kindness slash compassion practice every day. I can't believe I do it because it is so sort of syrupy, um, uh, but it seems to work. And, and, and the science is really what convinced me to do it. Um, so let's talk about how you do it. Um, uh, you have this course, CCT, Compassion Cultivation Training, uh, which you developed uh, in conjunction with some folks at Stanford, which teaches, I, I believe it's a seven or eight-week course. It's eight-week course. Eight-week yeah. course. So uh, you can't obviously tell us everything in it, but give us a taste of some of the practices that one would do uh, in, in your course. Um, I mean, the one thing that we emphasize right at the beginning is um, what we call the intention-setting practice. Um, and this is inspired from a particular Tibetan Buddhist approach where every morning you find a quiet moment. Maybe it doesn't take very long, two to three minutes or five minutes. And you consciously set your intention for the day. You know, if I want to be, today I, w I would like to be more mindful, more caring, more understanding, less judgmental, um, you know, whatever. You, you set your intention. And then in the evening, before you go to bed, at some point, you, in a sense, reconnect with that initial you know, intention that you set. So that's the framing. And intention setting is an important part of the compassion training because unlike mindfulness, mindfulness is practice of mindfulness has more to do with the cultivation of self-awareness. And in some sense, it's when it comes to value, it's neutral. It's a value-free kind of practice. Whereas when you're talking about compassion, it's not value-free. You're choosing compassion to be an important value in your life. So intention becomes a very important part of it. And the idea of intention setting is that by setting your intention, you change your motivation. Because it's very difficult to handle with motivation directly because motivations generally tend to be emotional, and emotions are very difficult to immediately switch and change. But by changing your intention, by choosing to a specific goal in your life, you kind of try to predispose yourself to experience and feel in that particular way. So it's like a cognitive rewiring of your emotional Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah, I have to say, I was. Uh, this is... Uh, 
you know, I've really been enjoying your book, and and um, and and this was one of the areas that landed uh, most successfully with me. This idea of intentions. I had always thought of intention setting in the same category as like making vision boards or doing, you know, aura readings or soul retrieval, whatever, just kind of new age yes. gobbledygook. But the way you describe it, I, I actually now think I'm probably going to do this. But all it is is taking a few seconds before you hurl yourself into the momentum exactly. of the day and start exactly. checking your emails yeah. to say, all right, what 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 are my highest goals for this day? Exactly. Um, which again, just sort of lifts you above the fray. You're going to have to throw yourself into the fray exactly, exactly. pretty quickly. Sure. But that, I, I would imagine that would set a much nicer tone yeah. for the day. And even for meetings, I think, you know, when you have an important meeting, especially a difficult one, like a challenging meeting, like with a staff member or a colleague, uh, again, taking that one minute, checking with the intention, really makes a huge difference. So that's the framing. I intend not to rip this person's head off because they're an idiot. That kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Or, or if, you, if you have a very strong opinion of this particular person, you know, to tell yourself, you know, let me be more mindful, right. not too reactive mm-hmm. and rush. Um, so that's that. the framing. And then um, the first step based on that framing is a basic mindfulness type practice because all the subsequent practices are premised upon having some ability to apply your mind. So this is like to state you you get people to focus on their breath so that their mind is stable yeah, enough more to kind do of what settled, comes next. Yeah, yeah. settled. Yeah. So that is the next step. And then after that, we then begin with the loving-kindness meditation. And what we do here, and here the sequence is different from the traditional approach. The traditional approach tends to be from self to a loved one, then to a neutral person, difficult person than all person. Let me just jump in for a second because some of our listeners might not know what loving kindness is. Exactly. Uh, So loving kindness, again, sounds helplessly, hopelessly um, uh, saccharine, but it it is actually just an insight from ancient contemplatives that, that compassion is not something like factory settings that you can never change. Compassion is a skill. Yes. And that you can cultivate it. Yes. And the ancient way of doing that is this kind of meditation called loving-kindness meditation where you wish others s- well, yeah. wish others well yeah. in a systematic way. You exactly. call them to mind, yeah. maybe even visualize exactly. them, starting exactly. traditionally with yourself and then to maybe a benefactor, to a dear friend, a neutral person, exactly. a difficult person, and then everybody. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, so but in the you've modern, changed the yeah. order. So we changed the order because it turns out in the West... You know, starting from self is very difficult because, for some strange reason, contemporary Western culture. We hate um, ourselves. Yeah, the self, the selfless self relation is very complicated, um, and it has probably something to do with the highly competitive nature of the society and the way in which we uh, kind of, you know, we have internalized a way of judging ourselves from a very early age, where we have been com- compared with someone else. And we have been evaluated, so externally kind of, you know, evaluated and so on. So what we did was to begin with a loving kindness for a loved one, someone that you, you know, you have no uncomplicated relationship, like a, you know, it could even be a pet. Yeah, it could be yeah, a cat. Yeah, a cat yeah. or, 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 or a granny that you really have a wonderful relationship or, or, or a mentor who has been so kind to you. So you allow your natural emotional response to arise so that you and 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 in whose presence you feel completely accepted as who you are unconditionally you evoke that so that's one step and once you're able to do it on a kind of a regular basis then we move on to the self where basically the 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 kind of the subtext is if you have this natural ability to do to someone else that you 
truly care. So now you just need to switch it on yourself, turn it on yourself. So we then have a two weeks of self-compassion practice because it's quite challenging in the West. And then once the self-compassion practice is done... Can we drill down on on that for a second, self-compassion? Because uh, my initial um, beef with self-compassion, and I suspect a lot of the people listening to this will share it, is having an internal cattle prod, an internal... um, uh, jockey that's just you know beating the yes, horse all sure. the time um, is the only route to success. If I don't have this, I'm going to be on the couch all day. Well, it turns out actually it may work for a while, but it's not very sustainable. And also the cost you pay is quite harsh. And that's the downside of being that kind of you know very strong, harsh self-critic to yourself. Whereas you can achieve what you want by switching it and being kinder to yourself and understanding your situation you know within the context of other people's experience as well so self compassion and it now there are a lot of research showing that among students who have problem with self compassion when they are uh, faced kind of a, a disappointment they it's very difficult to recover and many of them either deal with that situation through a denial and anger saying oh it sucks, system sucks, nobody's fair to me. Or turning upon themselves saying, oh, I'm a loser. You know, why should anybody care about me? Why, you know, I don't deserve this. So we, you know, switch into these modes. And none of these turns out to be a very effective tool. Can I just comment on the deliciousness of sitting across from a former monk talking about anything sucking? (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) It was great. Please keep doing it. So on the other hand, those who have greater self-compassion, are able to deal with the situation and not completely universalize it. When we are harsh towards ourselves, when we are confronted with the situation, we immediately universalize it, saying that everybody's unfair or turn it upon oneself. I suck. Nothing's going to, nothing works with, for me. Whereas if you are more self-compassionate, you're able to kind of you really look at the situation in concrete terms and not immediately rush to universalize it and relate to that particular difficulty and disappointment with a greater sense of proportion and understanding. So that, And then you learn. And it turns out to learn from a past mistakes and failure, self-compassion, if those who are, have a greater self-compassion are much more effective. So what is the practice to generate? How do you actually do it? How do you generate self-compassion? Um, a lot of that would involve almost like kind of a journaling. For example you confront with a difficult situation. Say, for example, you have an argument, difficult argument with a colleague. You know, you then, after things calm down, then you reflect upon that. You f- try to reimagine the scenario. How would I have reacted to this? And because you're feeling very bad now, and how did you, re- you know, relate to your own experience? Can I reframe it? in a way that is more compassionate, both to myself and the other person. So a lot of that has to do with the cognitive reframing of a situation so that you learned. Initially, it's very difficult to catch yourself because if you have a particular pattern, it's very difficult to catch in the moment. But you can catch yourself immediately after and reframe it. But also part of that involves, you know, now here it may sound a little cheesy. Um, part of the practice also that is very helpful is to I could call it almost like reparenting yourself. So you imagine 
for example, um, what we call compassion image or compassion figure in your life, someone in, in whose presence you really feel yourself. You don't need to pretend anything. There's a total feeling of self-acceptance and, and unconditional acceptance. You evoke that you know, through, your, through your imagination so that you know, you know, I mean, basically there is a British um, um, psychotherapist, psych- psychiatrist who developed a compassion-focused therapy which is specially targeting people who suffer with pathological self-criticism. And he actually, uh, his point was that a lot of people who suffer through this have forgotten how to switch on the self-soothing mechanism. So in our brain, we have different motivation systems. And a lot of people have learned to switch that off when it comes to their own experience. And self-compassion practice is, in a way, a kind of rebooting that system so that you learn to extend that soothing you know, mechanism, which we are all capable when we have to, I mean, As parents, pa- most parents will know when you have your young child in infancy, automatically, we don't have to learn this. It's in us. Mm. But many of us have somehow learn to switch it off when it comes to our own needs. So a part of the self-compassion practice involved kind of turning that upon yourself and switching that soothing kind of system, self-soothing system. I I should say that if you want to know more about what exactly these practices are and how to do them, it's all over the book. Yes, Uh, it's, yeah, the practices are presented in the book, yeah. But so let me, let me ask you, let me just get personal for a second on my end. Uh, let me just ask you, let me just give you some reports from the front lines of my own mind. And, and because I, I've been doing this kind of practice, not exactly what you teach, but this kind of practice for many years now. And I'm still uh, a complete moron sometimes. You know, I've just, the last couple of days I was in airports a lot, which is a great place to see, you know, how loathsome you can be. You know, the I, I basically didn't want to sit, talk to the woman next to me on the plane and uh, iced her out because I was supposed to, I was reading your book, which is <laughs> ironic. You know, I'm here reading this book about compassion, but I had to finish the book or, or get cl- further into it in order to be prepared for this interview. And I didn't want to talk to the woman next to me. And, you know, people cutting me off. I was tired. I could just see the sort of internal toxicity ramp up as this was happening. The other part of it is that you know, even after having done this for years, I'm still really hard on myself in ways that I recognize that are, aren't super constructive. You know, I'm, I'm really uh, critical of uh, the way I look and perform on television. I, you know, I'm like, oh, you look swollen there because you can't stop eating cookies or, <laughs> what, you know, just constantly or you need a haircut or whatever, just constantly on myself about this kind of thing. So does that suggest to you that these practices don't work or that I'm a terrible meditator or what? No, actually, the fact that you... Uh, now catching this in yourself is an indication that there is a higher level of self-awareness. But in in the you know before the practices, you may not even be you know aware that you are being overly self-critical. I just so, ought to go from the criticism to the I just go right down the road. Exactly, hole, right? exactly. Yeah. And and I think in fact, I mean, they for example, in some of the meditation texts, they tell you that when you first start meditating, you know, you might feel, you know, maybe a second or third week or maybe a second or third month, you feel that somehow your mind is getting worse mm. because you you know you never thought your mind was that restless, and now once you start meditating, you begin to catch and become aware how restless it is. So I think I would say actually it is a good sign that you're making progress. But also, I mean, we humans are very complicated creatures. I mean, there are so many forces that pull us in different directions. And 
you know, scientists now tell us that there are different motivation systems in the brain. And when confronted with a particular situation, what kind of motivation system we tap into, you know, changes the way in which we behave. So over time, I think it will change. Um, and someone like His Holiness, his default position is non-judgment and compassion. But if the situation calls for something tougher, then he's able to do it. But so that's the ideal. But it's, you know, and and the, the fact is, I mean, from your own personal experience, you know that as you meditate, you know, you benefit more from this. You know, you, and and it's very difficult to, completely prevent emotional reactivity because we are emotional creatures. But we are able to do it now with greater awareness. We catch ourselves before it is too late. You know, for example, I often tell people that, you know, say say you have an argument with your spouse. If you're a meditator, then you'll be able to catch before you go further down that path mm-hmm. and start saying horrible things which you will regret. Mm-hmm. You know, anger is anger. You know, we are emotional creatures. When we feel defensive... Anger is the expression that comes out. That's natural. I mean, I've seen anger in his holiness as well, but that's very human. But the difference is, if you don't have the self-awareness coming from kind of mental training, then you really go down that path and then start using the harshest things to just to make a point. My friend Sam Harris um, talks, we're not related, but um, he also wrote a, wrote a book about meditation. He talks about the, the half-life of anger and the difference between the amount of damage you can do in an hour of anger as opposed to two minutes exactly. of anger is, in, exactly. anger is incalculable. But so I assume, and you, you actually talk about this in the book, you, you still mess up even oh, though yes. you're oh, a, pro- a professional, compassionate oh, guy. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, and, and my wife is, you know, I, I, that's one of the things I tell my monastic colleagues that one advantage of being a married man is that you have your best critic next to you all the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in whose presence you cannot pretend. And that, I think, is, and I have found that to be tremendously helpful. And, of course, as a as an ordinary human being, you know, there will be ups and downs, you know, in, our, in my day as well, yeah. So what is your, I always like to ask people this question, we're almost out of time, but I just want to get a sense of what is your daily practice? What, give me the nuts and bolts of it. How much meditation do you do, and what are you doing? I spend about half an hour in the morning, yeah. Um, and part of that involves, I mean, as, as a Tibetan Buddhist, my own personal practice is framed within the Buddhist practice. So uh, I begin my meditation session sit, seated, um, and then I do a little bit of breathing at the beginning, and then intention setting. Um, and and then I have certain types of practices, you know, a large part of which is compassion meditation. And Are you also doing like tantric stuff that you're not allowed to talk about? Yes, that's part of my practice as well. And then I end with, um, there's a beautiful eight verses on training the mind, which is a altruistic practice in the Tibetan tradition, which is really like the setting for the day, kind of setting the tone for the day. And I end my practice with that. And part of the practice also involves uh, a little bit of mindfulness and breathing. But let me, let me, I'm just curious about uh, Tantra, which uh, is basically the secret practices. Why are they secret? Well, because um, Unlike mainstream Buddhism um, that you see in the Theravada tradition. The Theravada well. tradition is yeah, basically the, the progenitor of modern yes, mindfulness. Yeah, and the one that the version of Buddhism that you see in Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, and so on. Uh, Tantric Buddhism is more prevalent in Tibet and to some extent in Japan 
and to a little extent in some aspects of Chinese tradition as well. Um, part of the reasons for their secrecy has to do with certain kind of you know understanding of the role of human emotions, uh, including sexuality, as part of the liberative spiritual process. And if you don't have a grounding in the general Buddhist teachings, these practices can be misunderstood. You just go crazy with yeah. desire. Yeah. So that's one of the main reasons for its secrecy. Um, I could add, we could do a whole hour on that at some point in the future, but let me close with this. What do you mean by a fearless heart? What I mean by fearless heart is that a large part of fear that we have in our life is kind of an, uh, an kind of inarticulate sense of anxiety. And a lot of that inhibits our natural interaction with our love, particularly loved ones. And so my point is that through training our mind, through cultivating compassion, we can get to a point where we can live our life with transparency, without that kind of inhibition that obstructs us, you know, always hesitating, always doubting. And that's, that's the idea, that ideal I have when I say fearless heart. I'm still trying to get there, <laughs> but I like the way it sounds. Um, Thupten Jinpa, a pleasure. Thank you very thank you much. Thank you very much. And thank you, and thank you for the honor. Thank you for listening to today's show. You can find video of the episode and an article about it at abcnews.com. Thanks, as always, to the producers of the show, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, and Dan Silver. You can hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris anytime you like. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and leave a review. Thank you for that, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.